Time for another edition of Chip Chat, where we're joined by journalist Chip Gibbons. Hey, Chip. Would you like to tell the audience what hat I'm wearing this week, since they cannot see it? Well, you're, you're wearing that uh, same, what is that, like a, a newsboy cap? The Greek fisherman's hat. Yeah, that's Sam. it. That's right. I forgot. The tweed Greek fisherman's hat. What is the difference between a Greek fisherman's hat and a newsboy cap? Well, the newsboy hat is more flat, whereas this hat has all this, like, puffiness at the mm. top. Or more mm. round. Uh, so so that is the difference, I believe. I see that now. Okay. I, I don't know if it would be a great fisherman's hat in a, a colder in a colder climate. If I push the hat totally on top of the brim, it looks like a newsboy hat, but that's not that's not yeah, you see, that's not what it's supposed to be doing. <laughs> the audience cannot see, so someone should like narrate as though they are like a they... 19th boxing announcer. They cannot see it, but I think we've done a good job describing uh, what the hat looks like and how it is different than a newsboy cap. Chip is the policy director over at Defending Rights and Descend, an excellent organization, but he speaks only on his own behalf when he appears here on Chip Chat. He's also got some uh, big news that we'll talk about at the end of the interview here. But first, as we're recording this, there is a hearing going on in the House uh, about a free press, uh, how to preserve a free press. Testimony includes the president of the Communication Workers of America's News Guild, who is warning about uh, just uh, capitalists devouring news outlets, mass layoffs of journalists, cash extraction of uh, these traditional outlets. Uh, Glenn Greenwald is testifying, talking about uh, the uh, removal of Donald Trump from Twitter and the uh, censorship of the Hunter Biden story. Um, The hearing just started. I haven't had a chance to watch much of it. Um, So far, what hasn't been discussed is uh, the events that we saw over the summer against journalists, the mass arrests and police brutality against journalists. I would be surprised if this wasn't brought up during the hearing, given how recent all this was. And on this front, we have some news uh, that broke this week out of Iowa, where a journalist who was arrested um, by police covering a a Black Lives Matter uh, event over the summer uh, was acquitted in a trial. Um, This was a a controversial decision uh, by the uh, county attorney, Polk County attorney in Des Moines to even pursue these charges. And uh, at the end of the day, he was defeated uh, in this trial, a jury acquitting uh, the journalist, um, Andrea Sahori. Um, Chip, what are your thoughts on this? Well, so 2020 was a record-breaking year in the U.S., I believe, for the arrest of journalists, the people who do the U.S. Press Freedom Tracker, which I believe includes the Knight uh, First Amendment Foundation or Institute at Columbia, uh, the U.S., the Freedom of the Press Foundation, and I think Reporters Without Borders, they have documented 126 arrests of journalists during the year 2020. That is an unusually high number. My understanding is that the vast majority of those arrests happened during the uprisings uh, that came after the police murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. Obviously, a lot of people were upset that the police were still still murdering black people and still still getting away with it. And they took to the streets to exercise their First Amendment rights uh, to show they don't like police violence. And the police responded by uh, 
being violent towards them and sort of one could say proving their point um and and during these 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 protests you know we saw a number of instances where journalists were arrested um it's not necessarily terribly uncommon when you have these sorts of mass arrest uh, with protesters that journalists get swept up into it. Usually, though, usually, though, any charges are dropped against them. I believe there was a journal. There's a journalist who's currently suing the D.C. police uh, for being arrested during a protest and initially being charged with felony rioting. But the charges are dropped. What's unusual is the number of cases in which the prosecutors are not uh, not dropping the charges. There are, I believe, four, well, I guess it might be only three now, but four journalists who are due in court um, in this month, really, who were arrested during the protest and were, were charged and the charges were not dropped. And the big case that's gotten a lot of attention is, as you mentioned, by Andrea, Andrea Sahori, who was pepper sprayed, arrested, she was charged with interfering with police activity as well as orderly conduct. Uh, the officer who arrested her forgot to save the body camera footage, forgot. Um, and the prosecution actually at the trial, and this is a, a wonderful thing, um, uh, it introduced evidence against her that was filmed by other journalists who weren't arrested. So it's like, wait a moment. Why, why are these people allowed to be there? But it was a very uh, controversial prosecution. It got a lot of condemnation from press freedom groups and from, you know, U.S. US newspapers. Um, and, and there was an acquittal. And I think that's very good. I'd also point out that in the last um, half decade, we've seen some other disturbing charges brought against journalists. Uh, Amy Goodman, when she was covering the Standing Rock protest, uh, the local prosecutors tried to bring charges against her, I think, for maybe felony rioting. I'm not sure. Uh, and, and the prosecutor tried to argue that Amy Goodman wasn't a journalist because um, her, her broadcast on Democracy Now! were clearly sympathetic to, to the Standing Rock uh, water protectors. And when we did, when we saw the J20 uh, prosecutions, a number of journalists were arrested during the initial um, sort of mass arrest. And two of them, they tried to bring to trial. One went to trial. The other one had the charges dropped because the case had just failed so dramatically at that point. Uh, and, you know, you saw Jennifer Kirkhoff, the D.C. prosecutor, making sort of these same arguments that these people can't be journalists because they have you know, point of view and sympathy with the people they're covering. And, you know, you know, using that uh, argument, right, I.F. Stone, John Reed, Upton Sinclair are not journalists, right? You know, three of the greatest journalists of the 20th century would just, would just not be journalists. And more equally importantly, you know, the First Amendment prohibits the government from making any sort of viewpoint or content uh, distinction when covering when covering who isn't, who isn't a journalist. So they can't say that, you know, because you're on democracy now or you're at the nation or you're at uh, Means Morning News, right? And, and your program is, you know, clearly uh, politically sympathetic to people who resist having a pipeline poison their water 
Only Jake Tapper is a journalist. Yes, only Jake Tapper is a journalist. Yes, yes, right. You you can't you can't say that. But the fact we we didn't see that in this in this uh, case. We just saw you know no one is above the law. You know she shouldn't have been there, which is. And I believe it was brought by a, the actual prosecution was brought by a student attorney uh, who has ACLU linked to in her um, in her Twitter <laughs> bio. Of course, the ACLU is deeply opposed to this, but um, yeah, I wonder what's going on in her mind. Brecklin Carey. Uh, Brecklin is Carey. Her name. And uh, Brecklin Carey's involvement is particularly shameful because, um, you know, she's not like, obviously everyone deserves a lawyer in court, but, but, but when we're talking about that, we're usually talking about defendants, right? We're talking about everyone has a right to a defense. Yes. We have, here we have someone just signing up for trial experience, presumably because a lot of other people in the office were like, no thanks. I do not want to touch this. And rather than uh, stick up to the to the police department, you know, they, they just passed it around the office and, and until it trickled down to Brecklin Carey, who uh, will now carry this albatross uh, around her neck, hopefully uh, for for a long time. Though I presume that she probably won't have any problem getting hired by any prosecutor's office with this on her resume. Yeah, I mean. Got promoted after losing like multiple trials, right? Like the U.S. federal government had like a, what a ninety-nine percent conviction rate in court, and Jennifer Kirkhoff lost two hundred and seventeen cases that were brought in a tremendously abusive and unconstitutional fashion, and she got fucking promoted, right? You know, sometimes, sometimes in the prosecutorial world, you you fail upwards. Yeah, well, the the, the, uh, the point of that was probably not to secure prosecution as much as just to put these people's lives through hell, which uh, she definitely succeeded at there i think you're probably correct sam and I, I i will i will agree with what the other sam said right you know i strongly believe that everyone has a right to a defense attorney even if they are accused of and probably did something like very loathsome i am not into the like nancy grace attitude which i see some people on the left replicating where you like uh criminal defense attorneys for for, for taking on clients that we feel maybe unsavory, but like, you know, there's no right to prosecute people, right? Not everyone has a right to a criminal defense attorney. They don't have a right to be prosecuted, right? Um, uh, and and I just, I think it's a really important distinction to make between people who defend the rights of people who are loathsome because, you know, that's a principle that 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 should that should be upheld and, and not conflating them with their clients but also this idea where if you are the loathsome party, right, in this case, the prosecutor is the loathsome party because you're a lawyer who is just following orders, um, you know, you're, you're, free of, uh, you're free of any responsibility. Speaking of failing up and the um, J-20 case, Joe Biden has appointed as acting U.S. attorney in D.C. Channing Phillips, who helped prosecute uh, J-20 cases, including the case against Aaron Cantu, uh, one of the journalists who was arrested during J-20. And I believe he, his was the one where the charges weren't dropped. And uh, he told the Santa Fe reporter about 
the uh, appointment of Channing Phillips. He said, I'm stunned. It's still sinking in. The trauma has been really severe. It's taken a lot to be able to just hold it together and to come to work and do the work. And now that the thing is not there, I need to figure out how to live my life. Um, so yeah, it's uh, the, the being a, a shithead is, as you said, not a impediment to climbing the ladder in the prosecutor world. And here we see a, a Democratic administration uh, handing out a favor to someone who took part in the shameful J-20 case. Yeah, none of the people involved in the J-20 cases are going to have their career in any way on the prosecutor and police side, I mean, are going to have their career in any way uh, upended or destroyed by this. I mean, I briefly thought that Jennifer Kirkhoff might be in trouble because when the second uh, sort of mass trial opened, uh, the U.S. attorney came and sat in the audience, which is very rare for the USAO to go and sit and do court watching, mm. um, which which I, 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 I sort of interpreted and I, I don't, I don't think, I don't know if they, I don't know. I, I go back and forth with J20 as to whether or not they actually expected those cases to fall apart or not. Right. I think that Sam Sachs has a point that they destroyed and disrupted these people's lives. And I, I, it's totally plausible that that was the intent of doing so. And that's why Jennifer Kirkhoff got pushed off the ladder, up the ladder, not off the ladder. She got pushed up the ladder. Um, and and I think that's totally plausible. But I, I also do wonder if they maybe did not bring these cases with the intent to win them and the fact that it so blatantly fell apart. But, you know, what really ended the J-20 prosecutions is that there were three different judges who heard various motions and cases related to, to J-20. Uh, some of them made conflicting rulings. Uh, two of the judges were former prosecutors, right? And one of them, Chief Judge Robert Morin, was a former defense attorney who had done capital defense on um, of like of like death 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 row inmates in, in the South, um, right? And he was the only one who expressed any skepticism about the fact that the prosecution withheld evidence, right? You had an incident where you had a trial going on where the judge refused to throw out the evidence of the pro because the prosecution had withheld it or throughout the case. Well, in the courtroom, I don't know, above, uh, upstairs or next door, right, a judge was being like, no, you you withheld this evidence. This is a Brady violation. And like the, the starkness and difference in rulings between the two judges who were ex-prosecutors and basically stamped every single goddamn thing the prosecution did, which like, I mean, there was some really shocking misconduct in that trial. Like, even people I never used to be in law enforcement are like, what the fuck are they doing here? Um, and just rubber stamped it all versus, like, the one yeah. criminal defense attorney being like, I'm sorry, you didn't turn this evidence over and you had it? That doesn't strike me as an oops moment, though he had initially ruled that it was an intentional violation of the Brady, a potential Brady violation of Brady violations when the prosecution fails to overturn exculpatory evidence. And, you know, Jennifer Kirkhoff went and appealed because that was a black eye for her. And he decided she had just done it accidentally, which I still don't for the life of me understand how he thinks she did that accidentally. His initial ruling was the correct one. But the fact that the only judge willing to stand up to the USAO and this travesty of justice was an ex-defense attorney was not lost on me.
I mean, we need less like prosecutor to judiciary to Congress to president pipeline, right? Like, right. The, the idea that being a prosecutor is the only uh, route by which you get to ascend higher in either our legal or political system is really very grotesque and disturbing and has produced partially part of the reason produced these sort of disturbing um one-sided pro-police pro-prosecution rulings that we've been plagued by since sort of the reaction to the due process uh revolution of the um warren court a, a, a uh, anti-due process counter-revolution if you will well i mean the problem is in theory you know we we would have an independent prosecutor's office pursuing crimes but we don't have that anywhere in the country because the prosecutor's office is mean, mainly an extension of the police themselves because of how reliant prosecutors are on police in, in securing their convictions, which is, and all of this has been obviously well-documented in several different places for years and decades. And this is the first time learning of this. Yeah, well, I mean, the, that, 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 that police are not prosecuted because the prosecution offices depend on those police officers and they don't want to bite the hand that essentially feeds them. Um, so I'm not sure how, how, how much this case in Iowa was a result of someone getting the, uh, the short straw to be the prosecutor here versus how much this is the prosecutor's office you know, trying to do a favor to the police in this case. Um, well, I think it's a little of both. I mean, if, yeah. if they're handing it off to a law student, that's a pretty good indication that a lot of people in, in the uh, prosecutor's office were like, ooh, this goes this goes too far, <laughs> even for me. It was a misdemeanor trial, though, Sam, right? They might have ah, okay. misdemeanor trials to, to, to law students. Fair enough. Policy is, right? I assume, you know, the district attorney in Iowa doesn't come to do the jaywalking case. Maybe they do. I don't know. I don't know. But right. So I, it was a misdemeanor trial. I think that is I don't think if they were doing a felony rioting prosecution of this person, they would have handed it off to a law student. That would have been um, rather that would that would have been a bigger red flag. OK, yeah. What is the what's the takeaway, Chip, that it was a jury that decided not to convict on these charges? Does that sort of uh, speak to the, uh, I guess, public opinion on police brutality and uh, protest movements and how police have responded to those protest movements over the last summer? That's a really good question. I know that a lot of the Standing Rock uh, water protectors took plea deals because the juries in that area were so biased against the protesters and in favor of the pipeline uh, companies. So you can't always depend. I don't know. I mean, I mean, in D.C., obviously, the juries in the J-20 trial were not uh, sympathetic to the prosecution or Donald Trump or the police. I, I, I don't know what's happening in Iowa. I, I don't have my finger on the pulse of the people of Iowa. I mean, maybe I, I do think it was a very clear traditional reporter, you know, apolitical, engaged in traditional news gathering and then just sort of, you know, a very sympathetic defendant. Um, I, I, I don't know. I, I appreciate, maybe. I appreciate you saying that that was a good question and that you don't know, because that should be the outcome of a good question is that the person who's supposed to answer it doesn't know. I hate when people say that's a good question. Here's the answer, because then it wasn't a good question if they immediately knew the answer. <laughs> so thanks, Jeff. 
You're welcome. I'm happy to uh, tell you about things I don't know anytime, anytime you want. I saw it happen on TV this week, and it just kind of made me mad. It like clicked in my head when someone was like, you know what? That is a fantastic question, and I have the answer. It's like, okay, so you're fucking tooting your own horn that you have all the answers to all the good questions, you <laughs> asshole? That's called being on television, Sam, right? You know, you're all, it's always a, you're always asked. A this is the same thing. It's a podcast, television. You're still the, the, the authority here. You always ask me fantastic questions, Sam, and I always have the answers. Yes. Um, Not that one. All right. Um, Sam, did you have anything to add here or did uh, we want to move on to Chip uh, plugging his big news of the week? I was just going to say that it seemed like the uh, jury deliberations didn't take very long. So uh, whatever like two the reason hours. is. Less than two yeah, hours. Whatever, whatever the reason, it, um, it it seemed like the uh, the prosecution made a terrible case or just the defendant was very sympathetic. Probably both, from my understanding. Yeah. Chip Gibbons, he's on Twitter, Chip Gibbons 89 uh, This week you announced on Twitter uh, that uh, you've got a project coming out. Yeah, so I am going to be writing a book for Verso Books. Um, it will not be out until 2024. My, my manuscript is not due until 2023, which is good because I have obviously not started it yet. Stay tuned um, for the uh, party at the Verso Loft with Chip Gibbons 2024. <laughs> I'll get vaccinated after we all get vaccinated. Uh, we're so lost part for something I look forward to every year at left form. And that is, you know, one of the things I could not do because of the COVID, COVID plague. But perhaps, uh, when me and the boys get vaccinated, we will all go to the Verso loft as the meme so eloquently <laughs> says. Uh, the imp- so the book is tentatively titled The Imperial Bureau, the FBI, Political Surveillance, and the Rise of the U.S. National Security State. It's, it's going to be a two-part book. Part one is going to focus on the history of the FBI's uh, domestic surveillance of a uh, domestic advocacy group. So if you enjoyed my article in Jacobin on the 50th anniversary of the revelation of Pro, where I sort of map out the history of Pro, you'll, you'll love the book. Or um, if you've enjoyed the several appearances on Chip Chat that yes, we've made over yes. the last year yes. in which we've, yes. we've talked about a lot of this subject matter. Yes, yes, yes. If you, you enjoyed it. You could go yes. back and listen to the episodes just to sort of organize your thoughts as you're uh, preparing to embark on the book. <laughs> I will do that, Sam. I will do that. I will. I will. You know. You're welcome, Chip. You're welcome. A nine-page outline I gave gave to the publisher, and I will. I will just listen to old Chip Chat episodes because that is all one needs in life. Um, but no. But one of the things I'm going to be doing, and the second part of the book will uh, be a look at the current FBI's counterterrorism authorities and how they uh, facilitate the monitoring of First Amendment protected activity. But but the the book has a larger argument which, you know, when the FBI formed its first intelligence unit, the so-called radical division, police departments around the country had formed, quote-unquote, red squads, which were uh, intelligence divisions dedicated to policing radical thought. So when the FBI develops the radical division, it's very much in line with this norm about using police and intelligence to to tackle dissent. Uh, From there, though, the FBI goes on to become not just a law enforcement agency, but one of the most important intelligence agencies in the U.S. You know, when the CIA is formed, J. Edgar Hoover is very uh, 
angry because the FBI is the intelligence agency. We don't need any new ones. So, you know, we we constantly hear this narrative about sort of intelligence abuse of First Amendment protected activity, where it's just they're overly zealous in their mission to thwart foreign spies and saboteurs and international terrorists. And it's because of this sort of external project of defense of the nation that bleeds over into blurring the lines between dissent and, you know, going at people domestically. But what I plan to argue in the book is that the domestic policing of dissent predates the sort of externally facing national security state and it builds into it. And what does it mean is, I think, the big question and one I don't have the answer to. But what does it mean that our national security state was in part so premised on an agency whose original intelligence purpose is the surveillance of domestic dissent? What does that mean for our democracy? I have to ask you, Chip, and feel free to say you don't know, but if but first, you could, first say it was a good question. If you do first say, say it was a good question, but if you got to pick one actor or uh, one person famous for having a voice to do the audio version of the book, who would you pick? Oh, um, huh. Don't say James Earl Jones too, because that's too obvious. <laughs> I have no idea. Well, think about it, and maybe you'll have an answer for us uh, next week. One of the I... one of the three guys who does all the Ken Burns films. <laughs> maybe I could have the movie trailer announcer guy do the book. In a world. <laughs> or the uh, what about remember the uh, remember the monster car announcer commercial guy like Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. <laughs> uh. Pro, Pro, Pro. <laughs> Well, Chip, we are all looking forward to uh, your book, uh, 2024. I can't imagine what the world's going to look like then if any of us will be around, what the sea levels will be at. Um, but I'm sure it'll be fine to uh, to, to, to check out, to, to, to release a book on the FBI. What was that? I'll be on book tour, so the world would be pretty great for my end, you know. Um, I have to travel on a boat because the sea levels have risen, perhaps. But, you know, I've always wanted to do a, a boat book tour. Well, you'll have to uh, come on the podcast in 2024 to talk about your new book, Jim, because we'll still be here, <laughs> goddammit. Maybe they'll invite you on the nation cruise. I mean, I would go on the nation cruise if I was invited. I would go. I'm not saying I would turn it down. I, mean, I don't terribly like boats or cruises, but I would, I would, I would, I would go where the nation sends me. <laughs> Chip, we'll talk to you next week. We will. All right, have a good one.